Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Today we're speaking to the extremely esteemed author Michael Lewis, who has written on all sorts, like The Big Short, I'm sure you all know that. Uh, but he's just written a absolutely critical book about the pandemic. It's called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. We have a lot to talk about and he is a just a, a beautiful and insightful writer, wherever you stand. Uh, do support us using uh, Patreon or the support function if you're able to do so. Um, please leave us five stars, that costs nothing, uh, and leave a review to encourage others to listen to the podcast. And with that, please enjoy the podcast. We are joined by the one, the the only, Michael Lewis, actually, thank you very much, uh, who is, I, I was just saying before we started filming, just, it's incredible that he turns out these masterpieces. I know I just look like I'm just trying to flatter my guests, but I'm not. It's masterpiece after masterpiece, irritating as well from uh, an author's perspective. I hope you feel happy with yourself, Michael. Uh, you know, smug. <laughs> smug. The smug Michael Lewis with his masterpiece, his masterpieces, which he just drills out. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, the last time I saw you in conversation talking about your your last book, um, quite one or two things has happened since then. Uh, the world has collapsed for a start, um, and that's of course what your book is about. Uh, the premonition, which is uh, just an incredible, startling book, and 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 that's hard to do because so many books were going to be written about this period of time, and it was going to be very difficult to write something which I think lands as much of a punch as this one managed. So well done. What I'm going to do, okay, just to kind of kick off the whole point, of the premonition. I suppose what happened. Pr- to be, it's fair to say, with a lot of Democrats and a lot of Trump's opponents, is it all became about big, bad Trump, who was such a pantomime villain, quite easy to do. And there was a sense of he was a year zero when he became president. And before that, there was these idyllic times which he disrupted. That clearly was not true. So just do you want to talk about that? This was, you know, as easy to say after a catastrophic human consequence of the pandemic. I'll let my cat just... <laughs> good timing yep. yeah, a catastrophic human death toll one of the biggest death tolls of any event in u.s history um approaching six hundred thousand people still not as bad a death rate as britain incidentally but one of the worst nonetheless in the world uh a, a, a terrible human catastrophe but do you just want to explain what you do in this book is you make it clear that actually this wasn't simply trump being the calamity that people let's consensus agrees he is so it's it, it's built into the structure of the book. We don't even get to the pandemic until I think page 180 in a 300 page book. And it was built into my understanding of the event before I even sat down to wrote write to write it. And um so I find these characters in March who are kind of the equivalent of the characters in the big short. These characters who are on the fringe of the event. They aren't they aren't in the middle of the pandemic response. 
they're 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 important in their own way, but they're on they're not in a position to run the U.S. or even any kind of local local response to the pandemic. And their stories um, kind of tell you that that well before Donald Trump, we had problems. That you know Charity Dean, who is a local public health officer, um, would have told you in 2015 based on her experience of battlefield command in fighting communicable disease on the ground in Santa Barbara County. And it's not COVID, of course, it's, it's tuberculosis or, or, or um, measles or hep C or whatever it is, that the country had gutted its public health system. And they didn't even have a public health system, but, but the resources available to the 3,000 disconnected local health officers who actually were going to have to confront any disease uh, had been had been whittled away and and mismanaged and um, and that the federal government to the extent that they were organizing things or leading these people were misleading them and misorganizing and so you had you are you had a dysfunctional system before Trump um, you had a system that has sort of given up on the idea of the importance of government. And what Trump did is just put a fine point on it, right? He came in and said, I, I don't care about this thing. I don't, I don't care about it to the point where I'm not going to even show up for the meetings about what's going on in the government when I take control of it from the Obama administration. Um, so the, the characters, the stories of the characters sort of, sort of reveal um, that this was not going to go well no matter who was president. And that the reasons it wasn't going to go well ran much deeper than Trump. And for me, not to go on too much, but for me, it was really interesting because I, my previous book, The Fifth Risk, was about the ineptitude of the, trans, the Trump administration in the transition and as a way of getting into what the government did. And, and I, when I wrote that, I was thinking, like, how's he going to kill me? And I was thinking of him, you know, I, just his ineptitude was what worried me. And I would have assumed that whatever happened, whatever bad thing happened, uh, uh, that that ended up being the the thing, that I would have come back to Trump and and featured him front and center in the book. And the the story led me away from him, as you know. I mean, he's just very backgrounded in it because because he is sort of as one of them, one of the doctors in the book puts it, he's a comorbidity. He's not what exactly what killed us. Uh, something else killed us. Now, you always have these extraordinary characters. I say characters, they're, of course, real human beings. But Charity Dean, I think, is one of the most striking of any of the characters that have appeared in your book. She's a public health officer. She ends up leading the Californian response to COVID-19, which then has implications well beyond California. Do you just want to tell us about Charity Dean and what we learn through Charity Dean? Sure. Why don't I tell you about, about how I found her? Because yes. nobody's ever heard of her. Um, I met is in March. I met a a group of doctors who, who who had been named oddly the Wolverines. It was seven doctors who had been in and out of the White House over the previous twenty years, and who were in kind of key positions around the the medical industrial complex. And they had um, every time they'd been a big threat to the country, whether it was Ebola or the swine flu in two thousand and nine or the original SARS, they, they came together and, and, and sort of formed a kind of shadow response, helped the government. Sometimes we're in positions of power in the government. These people, um, 
were, I mean, it's a longer story, were meant to be running the Trump administration response. And, and that didn't happen for complicated reasons. But, but they said to me, we've met this woman in California who is the hope for California. Her name is Charity Dean. Um, meanwhile, the other main character of the book, the, the biochemist at, at UCSF here, who is kind of like the world's most badass virus hunter, said to me, I've met the woman in California who is the only hope for California. Her name is Charity Dean. This happened several times until I ran her down. And so Charity Dean is by, she's by training a, a doctor and a, a, public, um, a, a public health person. She'd spent a decade in, as I say, battlefield command in Santa Barbara County running um, the public health office there. She was pulled in to run the state of California um, so its public health department back in 2018, early 19, um, and did it briefly. But then Gavin Newsom was elected, decided he needed a person of color in that job and basically demoted her, didn't give her the job when he took over. And so she was sidelined uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, but she was, everyone who met her said she was the one who should have been running things. And what interested me about her was just her, the character, the, the person. Uh, so let me tell you how I meet her. I call her and she says, after the governor, after the California state government says, no, you're not going to be allowed to talk to her. No, she doesn't want to talk to you. I get her a private cell and she says, I'm happy to talk to you. And I, I, I got to know her a bit. I would visit her house up in Sacramento. And it was clear that she was on top of this thing by January. She was aware of what was going on and that she had developed in her career as a public health, as a disease tracker, a kind of sixth sense about when bad things are about to happen. Um, and this is the moment she becomes a character in my book. Um, she's describing what this sixth sense feels like, the kind of tingle she gets when she knows she's in the presence of a tuberculosis outbreak. And she's mentioned to me that every year on her birthday, which is December the 20th, she writes these her resolutions and she puts them on the back of her grandmother's photograph, her dead grandmother's photograph. Um, I ask her, can I just walk around your house and, and see what's here, just get a sense of you? Leave me alone in the house for an hour. I'm wandering around the house and I see this grandmother's photograph. I take it off the wall and on the back, are all these resolutions going back 15 years, some of them very personal, and all of them like the kind of resolutions people make in, on New Year's, like learn French, go to West Africa and, 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 and treat patients, whatever it is, things to do. December 20th, 2019, it says the first line is something very personal. The second line is, it has started. I grab this thing and I go find her. I say, what is this? She said, I just had a sense at the end of December that this thing was coming, that the thing I'd been preparing for my whole career, that a, kind of a serious pandemic was coming. And I can't tell you how, and I can't tell you why. And she'd written it down back in this picture. And I thought, you know, this was, it was the result of a, a lifetime of preparing for the moment. She was ready for the moment. She knew exactly what to do. And the society had no way, way to access her. Um, the other, side, the other side of her that was so interesting to me was that the job of being a public health officer, at least in this country, um, 
is an incredibly nervy job. You take the job on the assumption that someone's going to fire you for some mistake you made. You're constantly making decisions in conditions of ambiguity. You never have enough information because that by the time you by the time you have all the data on disease spread, it's too late to do anything about it. You're always acting on a premonition. You're always acting on 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 some in some data and some instinct. And she herself had this extraordinary you know, upbringing. She, it, it's basically the Tara Westover story, the story she's told and educated. She was raised in a, in a fundamentalist Christian small town environment where the women were just supposed to breed children and not get an education. And she was, you know, threatened from a very early age by, because of her interest in science and her particular interest in viruses from a very early age. And she had overcome a lot of fear, a lot of actual danger, to get herself in the position she was in. And she lived with a lot of fear, but she realized she had to be brave to do her job. And she was this ex extraordinary example of willed bravery. Like, I know I'm scared, but I'm not gonna allow the fears to determine my actions. And as I walked around her house, I, I, there were, you saw all these kind of messages to herself, like big signs that said something like, um, courage is a muscle memory. You know, little reminders that she needed to be brave. And I thought, how extraordinary it is that this person who no one's ever heard of, this public health officer, has got to be brave in this way. Um, anyway, I knew at that point I had a character. And she ends up being kind of a unifying force in the narrative. She brings all the other characters together. But she's also one of those voices that sort of reliably can tell you, even from the outside, what's going on in the inside. Now, I'm going to throw this just seems a bit odd for viewers if I suddenly say this, but I'll say it anyway. Nasal swabs. Tell me about this <laughs> random thing to throw in. This is such an interesting, I think, and revealing uh, part of the story. So just let's let's talk. Let's talk nasal swabs. Let's talk nasal swabs. So as you say, the three main characters of the book, one of them is this UCSF virus hunter named Joe DeRisi. Joe DeRisi is, at the moment of the beginning of the pandemic, uh, in addition to being a, uh, a UCSF researcher, uh, the, the head of something called the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Priscilla Chan, Mark Zuckerberg's wife, took a couple hundred million dollars of their money and created this institution five years ago. Um, and it's it's got this outrageous ambition to eliminate disease by the end of the 21st century. It sounds very Silicon Valley. Um, they picked Joe DeRisi to run it because Pr Priscilla Chan has heard him talk about his work when she's a medical student and she thinks he's the only one who could do this. And Joe DeRisi is an extraordinary character. Um, but he's put in the position at the beginning of the pandemic of like, how do I respond? I mean, I have actually a lot of sophisticated tools for tracking viruses genomically by their genomes. Uh, it's, it's fancy pants intellectual stuff that could be reused in the real world, but we don't even have tests to see who has COVID. So he realizes he has to turn the Chan Zuckerberg uh, biohub into into basically a public health office where they can do, they do the testing and they go out and they look for the virus. And he does it, he, he, he marshals several hundred postdocs and graduate students from this very fancy university into a coronavirus testing lab. And they get 
the, the resources of basically Silicon Valley thrown behind them. And they're ready and up and running. And they have to do this because the CDC has a test that doesn't work. So we have no ability in this country at the end of March, early April to even test for the virus. Um, and he realizes before they get going that, 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 that um, there's this problem that they can run the tests, they can process the tests, but the public health labs, the, you know, the hospitals don't have test kits. And what they're missing in particular are the nasal swabs, the things you stick up people's noses to see, to, to get a culture to, to test. And he goes looking for nasal swabs. Um, it's the limiting factor in his life for several weeks. The, the first stab comes, and this is among where the Trump administration comes into the book. Um, he calls, um, he calls a, uh, uh, basically the White House in so many words. And the White House says, we have them. We're sending them. Uh, we're going to send you 50,000 nasal swabs across. the, And they're in a truck and they're coming, they're coming across country. And everybody's excited. Uh, and days pass and the swabs don't arrive. And he finds out that, yeah, there was a truck. The truck got as far as Sacramento. Someone opened it up and realized that these weren't nasal swabs. They were Q-tips. That the, that the Trump administration never had the nasal swabs. Um, he then goes on a, a kind of a private hunt for how do you get these things? I mean, it, it's amazing that in this country that, that, that we don't have them, but it turns out there are only a few factories that make them. And then there are these factories in China that are being sort of repurposed in response to American demand largely uh, to generate these things. And, um, you know, you know, venture capitalists, Silicon Valley tech people go looking for him. People turn up with boxes of stuff that look like nasal swabs and they're like cosmic, they're like eyelash applicators. Uh, it, it, it becomes this comedy um, that allows, the, the point of which is it allows Joe Derisi to see just how broken the system is. Like he lives in academia and academia has its own problems, but he now sees watching the free market at work and the free market doesn't generate these things. What it generates is a lot of fraud around these things. And eventually, eventually, someone finds someone in China who is making actual nasal swabs and delivers them. But only after lots of money is spent, lots of time is wasted, and lots of people go untested. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, it is with the premonition. I mean... The idea of a pandemic clearly was not something which just fell out of a clear blue sky. I mean, there were several films, obviously, it's a popular genre. Contagion itself was a film a few years ago, which was about a virus crossing the species barrier in China. But above all else, outside of Hollywood, we did have the precedent of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which killed, of course, potentially up to 100 million people. We're not actually entirely sure how many it did kill, but it, and, and, it, and it's not often spoken about as much as it was in history because partly it squeezed between two world wars and interwar. The interwar period was eventful, to say the least. But nonetheless, we could see what happened and there were huge lessons which people did attempt to draw. What happened there? What happened in terms of the political response based on learning from the precedent of what happened now over a century ago? Well, there are two stories. One is, you know, the, the, the story that my one of my main characters is right in the middle of, Carter Mesher, who is at the who is brought into the White House, though he's just a critical care doctor in the Veterans Administration who who, you know, is thought to be a creative thinker, but he doesn't have any previous experience with pandemics. But he's brought in by the Bush administration to think about how you respond to a pandemic. And one of the extraordinary things about this whole story to me is that we sort of invented pandemic response here in 2006 and 2007, spread the ideas around the world and then didn't use them ourselves. But but what, one of the things he does that's so curious to me, he and a colleague named Richard Hatchett, um, they go and look at what happened in 1918 in a new way. They're not academics. They're, doc- they're ordinary doctors, just they're ordinary doctors. They're doctors who happen to be very smart. Um, and they go look at it because the conventional wisdom that came out of 1918, or rather the conventional wisdom that formed around uh, retrospectives of 1918 in the public health community was that um, social interventions, the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, social distancing, mask wearing, closing businesses and churches and preventing large gatherings and all that didn't work that they hadn't worked in 1918, that everybody did them. And the, 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 you know, still you had these waves of death and there was no, there was no obvious connection between the interventions that occurred in various cities and, and the outcomes. So, um, so the view with, of the experts in 2004 was that don't bother that you, you, that you, that all you can do in response to a new pathogen is, you know, hustle on the vaccine. Um, and these two doctors just don't believe that. And they, they just wonder, they just like, it just didn't make sense to them. And they go back and they, they, they go through, you know, the archives of what happened in various American cities. And they discover that, oh my God, there were very big differences between say, St. What happened in St. Louis and what happened in Philadelphia and you can actually explain them if you go back and look at what what those cities did and when in relation to the arrival of the virus in the city. 
And that, you know, St. Louis had half the death rate of Philadelphia because they shut things down earlier than Philadelphia in relation to the arrival of the virus in the city. And they then go out and persuade everybody. I mean, over a period of a couple of years, a thousand meetings in 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 ballrooms uh, where they're explaining to the public health community that this actually worked. And they bake it and they and they write for the Centers for Disease Control, a new plan that the Center for Disease Control spreads around the world, that social interventions do work, that 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 um, social distancing and all this is not futile. Um, so there's that side of the story where these people here re really recreated the event 1918 and thought about what it meant and changed the way uh, we potentially would respond to to a pathogen. Um, there, but there's this other thing. And the other thing is, like, the level of preparedness, at least in this country, the, the, the likelihood of an intelligent response is going to vary pretty dramatically from administration to administration. And underneath it is a complete neglect of the, of the public health system that's got to do the responding. So there was kind of the theory of pandemic response that was dreamed up in relate because of their work and uh, 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 the reconsideration in 1918. And then there's the fact. And the fact was that it wasn't in our faces. Nobody was dying. It hadn't happened in a long time. There'd been some false alarms. So we didn't invest in it and we didn't take it very seriously. Um, the Center for Disease Control, which obviously has quite an important role, hence the, well, the title, just just zoning in on this, I mean, refusing to act, it's a kind of Kafkaesque element of it. Uh, they won't test for COVID because COVID isn't a problem. So they don't discover any cases because they're not testing for it. I shouldn't laugh. I mean, it's been a long time. No, but that's week. exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. To the point where they, one of the the Wolverine doctors, one of the people in this group runs a a center, a, a medical center in Omaha, Nebraska. It's a federal center. Where to, it's a place where they send, you know, people with Ebola. That some any new horrible case of any new disease gets sent there to be both treated and investigated. He's got on his hands at one point, very early on, all these people who've been re Americans who've been repatriated from Wuhan, and he wants to test them for COVID, not unreasonably. And he asks the, the Center for Disease Control if he can do it. And the Center for Disease Control takes a couple of days and stews on it and says, very clearly, you're not allowed to do it because if you did it, it would be it would be performing a medical experiment on prisoners <laughs> or some such rationalization. And meanwhile, these poor Americans who are who are, you know, quarantined in in, you know, National Army barracks are all begging to be tested. But the, the CDC insists they cannot be. And this kind of thing happens over and over in the beginning of the pandemic. And it is, in retrospect, perplexing. But clearly one of the forces at work was the CDC knew that the tests they had didn't work. And they were, they were, they were worried about being embarrassed. Just a couple of other things. I mean, it, as I've said, in Britain, we've had a, a truly catastrophic handling of the pandemic by the government, well, about one in every 500 people have died of COVID-19 in this country. Um, but one of the great successes has been the vaccination program. To be fair, it's actually going well in the United States for different reasons, but it's partly in this country because of our National Health Service, which is a publicly owned and run uh, uh, health service. 
and, and it was said by um, a former Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson, that the closest the English have to a religion is the National Health Service. And <laughs> never has that been more self, seem, seemingly obvious, because if you go around Britain, in millions of windows, often children have drawn uh, rainbows, which they've stuck on their family, uh, on their household windows, uh, to say thanks to the, the NHS. Um, so it's, you know, this great outpouring. Now, obviously, America has a privatized, which we discussed there, privatized healthcare system. So just kind of really underline how a pan- what happens when a pandemic collides with a privatized, uh, fragmented healthcare system. Well, um, I'll give you some examples to underline what happens. Um, the, our system uh, is, is really not well suited to, to do things that, doesn't, that don't pay um, and really well suited to milking profits out of a medical emergency. So for the duration of this pandemic, even up till now, um, there have been billions and billions, and I mean billions and billions of dollars spent on COVID testing and paid to big testing companies um, for tests that were useless because it took the testing companies 10 days to respond to the, to the test. Um, and um, meanwhile, um, cheap free alternatives were not used. Um, Joe Risi builds a lab. It's a cheap free alternative. He'll do all your COVID testing for free and he can't get anybody, even the public, some of the public health um, officials to send him COVID tests because they have contracts with the labs. One horrific example, um, he was aware, Derisi was aware early on that prisons were going to have a huge problem. And around the corner in our backyard is San Quentin. And he went to the San Quentin prison officials and he said, you've got to test vigilantly because if it gets loose, the virus gets loose in there, it's going to be a catastrophe. And they used him once nervously because they had a contract with a big testing company and they were worried of, about violating the terms of that contract by using his free service. Then they didn't use him again. Then the state of California um, buses some prisoners from one prison to another. One of them has COVID and no testing is getting done on time. And, um, you know, at the end of it, I don't know, 30 people, something like that died. Um, the, that kind of thing happened over and over. And there's a, there's a broader thing. And it's, it, it, you know, it's apropos of our two societies. It's really interesting that you go back to middle of 2019 and there's an operation in Washington called the Nuclear Threat Initiative that spent vast sums of money and corralled hundreds of experts to, do, to perform a quixotic task. And the task was, let's rank all the countries on the planet uh, in order of their pandemic preparedness. And we were one and two. The U.S. was one and the U.K. was number two. It's sort of like preseason football rankings. Like, like we look at those, we look at that team and it's got all that talent. And so we think they're going to win and they'll be number two. And so we did not finish one and two. We finished like at the bottom. And, um, and the question is like, what's the gap? What's happening here between the resources available to the society, the seeming competence of the society, 
and the outcomes when, when the games are played. And the, here anyway, one of the answers is the, the um, horrible inefficiency, the deadly inefficiency of a public health system that's driven by, mainly by motives of private profit. And that, that there's no money in disease prevention. There's a lot of money in dealing with disease. Uh, so there are these incentives baked into the system to kind of screw it up. And there's, there's no energy uh, behind the public good of like just stopping it from happening in the first place. Finally, um, a pandemic will happen again. Sorry to depress everybody. Uh, and in fact, we are still overdue a flu uh, pandemic uh, because obviously... I mean, that was part of the problem in, in this country with the response, because initially the authorities treated this as though it was influenza, when obviously a coronavirus is very different. Do you think lessons will be learned? And what, what can we learn from your own incredible book about preparing for the eventuality of another pandemic and avoiding the catastrophic loss of life and the terrible impact on all of our lives uh, that we've seen over well over a year now? So I tell you something interesting that one of the reasons I was able to write this thing and feel like the story was over uh, from the point of view of my characters was that the character, all three of the main characters of the book by June said, this is done. We, we now, we can tell you, you know, kind of within a band, how many people are going to die, uh, you know, that, that the response has been a failure and their minds swiveled, their minds swiveled in about last June to the next pandemic. They were thinking, um, this was horrible. The grief, the grief is unbearable, but this was not the big one. Uh, this, that it could have been much more lethal. It could have in particular, it, and it still could, uh, mutate into something that um, was lethal in children. Um, it, 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 just, it could be more lethal. And they asked themselves, what do we do so that the next one we, we we don't do this we don't do this all over again and um so the two questions like is the society prepared to do it and what do you do and it's it's i you know it's unclear how much energy there is right now um for total overhaul of the u.s healthcare system uh, I mean, the, at least the public end of it, you, what you would do is things like you wouldn't probably get rid of the Center for Disease Control, but you wouldn't call it that. You consider call it the Center for Disease uh, Observation and Reporting. Uh, they don't control disease. They're not set up to. They're, they're, they're set up to, to be fairly cowardly in a moment in, in moments where they demand courage. Um, you would invest pretty heavily in the local public health officers and you create a genuine network that doesn't exist. Um, I mean, things you do are not, it's not that complicated to figure out what to do. The question is, did we sufficiently suffer that we will have the will to do them? And, and um, I would say, it doesn't matter what I think, my, what my characters would say is maybe, <laughs> that, that, there's, that, that there's been some movement. Um, one of the reasons they wanted me to write the book was they thought I could accelerate the movement. Um, but it, it's, 
it's kind of unclear because I don't know about there, but here, um, the answer you get to that question, do we need to do something, depends very much on where you are in the country. And you can still find places in this country where people will tell you that the whole thing is kind of a hoax, um, that overblown, um, that the big mistake we made was responding at all. Uh, it's crazy. Um, had we not, had it been an unmitigated pandemic instead of whatever, 600 or 700,000 dead or whatever we end up with, it would have been millions. Uh, but but pe- there, there's still a fraction of the country that believes that. And it's a little hard to know exactly, it's a little hard to identify the movement in, in, in public opinion. Um, I'd say this, the hopeful thing is, the Biden administration has already been able to do stuff that was unthinkable five years ago. And the attitudes towards government seems to have shifted. And the willingness of the Democrats to actually sell the benefits of government seems to be increasing. And the, the ferocity with which the Republicans fight that seems to be decreasing. So there does seem to be a kind of like kick in the pants thing that's happened and a possibility that we come out of this with an understanding that government isn't the problem, that for some problems like a pandemic, uh, it's the only solution. Um, but kind of hard to know right now. Michael, it is a genuinely remarkable book. And as I've said, it's so challenging to be able to write a book about something which, I mean, there will be countless books about this for a very long time to come, but this one will always stand out as a, definitive read on, of course, the biggest global emergency since World War II. Um, and in terms of le- in terms of those lessons you, you spoke about, this book, again, so eloquently through these incredible characters. I mean, they truly are, as always, incredible characters, really just, just speaks, uh, speaks to those lessons. So it's a big honour, as ever, to see you remotely in this strange new world we currently live in. Uh, but thank you so, so much for joining us on both our video and the podcast. So it's been a total pleasure and I hope to see you in person soon. We will. We'll have a drink on the other Great. side. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Help us decide who we talk to, what we talk about, the documentaries we do, uh, and also on the support function, uh, which you can see in the description. And leave us five stars and a review. It's just helps other people listen Uh, and with that thank you so much speak soon hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.